I remember my, my bookkeeper talking to me and saying, what the fuck are you doing? We're losing so much. You're going to be out of money. I was like, I'm telling you, there's something here. I really, I love this. Yeah. Right. So no, you don't have to be good at it. You just got to love it because here's the deal. Uh, even if you're good at it, uh, the going's going to get tough. The wheels are going to fall off the bus. Just when, just when you think you got it figured out, you're going to get punched in the face. And if you love it, if it's your true north, if it's your calling, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pull you through those tough times. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. With what started over 15 years ago as curiosity to lose weight while working on Wall Street by participating in hosting endurance races to building one of the biggest global communities with millions of members who push their limits to embrace discomfort across an obstacle course, Joe DeSena has certainly built an empire in obstacle course racing and the world of purposeful suffering known as Spartan Race. Joe, who's the founder and CEO and New York Times best-selling author and absolute madman, finishing 50-plus endurance events in one year, including several ultra marathons and triathlons, is the first guest on our Ultra Habits podcast, where we will dive deep to unpack his design for living, which includes his key habits, behaviors, attitudes, and actions that guide him towards his true north, as he calls it. Joe's unique blend of exposure to influences such as wise guys, Ivy League education, and yogic principles and ultra endurance has culminated in a dynamic force which you cannot be helped but drawn to. Folks, this is our first episode here at Ultra Habits. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I've had different conversations with Joe, so the conversation is quite natural. It's fun. It's informative. His family's in it. And uh, a bit of an inside joke, the light goes off during our interview, and this is actually the second time it's happened in our conversations. So yeah, look, it's a lot of fun, and I hope it impacts you in the way that it's impacted me. I am keen for your feedback. Peace, y'all. Let me know what y'all think. So you are actually our inaugural kickoff. I've done a bunch of interviews, but we're kicking off the show with you. And the first thing I want to do, because I've never really heard anyone unpack this is talk about the spartan prayer right now i'm going to read it because i think it's super powerful and i want to talk about how you actually came up with this right so i'm going to read it now so i'm asking you god to give me what you have left give me those things which others never ask of you i don't ask you for rest or tranquility not that of spirit the body or the mind i don't ask you for wealth or success or even health all those things are asked of you often and that you can't have any left to give. Give me instead what you have left. What others don't want. I want uncertainty and doubt. I want torment and battle. And please promise me you'll keep it coming. But give me also the courage, the energy, and the spirit to face them. Badass. Is that awesome? Because I, I just got chills when you just um, said it. I stumbled upon a prayer um, written by a soldier, a French uh, paratrooper in the 1940s at World War II, who um, they found this in his pocket. He had died. He was, he was laying in the field. And they found, I'm getting chills, um, talking about it because imagine his state of mind 
um, he was like, hey, God, all these guys around, everybody's asking for the good stuff. So I just want you to give me what you got left. Give me the worst shit you have. But just promise me you'll keep it coming. He clearly was one of us. So, or we're, we are one of him. And um, man, I'm, I'm, I'm my, all the hair standing up on my neck. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty psyched. But you, you, can't, you need that mindset um, to really succeed in life because shit's going to happen all day, every day. There's, we're not going to be able to stop it. Like we are going to face resistance all day, every day. Your friends are going to die. Your family's going to like shit just happens. And if you're expecting like, you know, rose tulips and like everything to work wonderfully, like you're it's not like you're going to be let down. You're going to be miserable. So I rather and, and this French paratrooper like just accept it. And, 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 and say to yourself, you know what, um, I can do fine with the tough stuff. I, I actually uh, can thrive with the tough stuff. I actually welcome the tough stuff, you know? And when you do that, when you change your mindset and you expect that every day, and then you're only, all you have to work on, it, all you gotta, you're already expecting it, all you gotta work on is just being a little tougher so that you can deal with it, then it's easy. But if you expect if you expect like easy and comfortable and uh, smooth time, like nothing lasts forever. None of us get out of here alive. So mm. I don't know if I answered the question well. No, you, you did. You did, Joe. It, it's an interesting thing. And uh, I know that the theme of your, your message is that we need to get people off the fucking couch. What about... I'm going to ask you a question that I don't think anyone's asked you. What happens when you get addicted to the tougher way? How do you implement sustainability? And I know your view is that most people need more tough, but what happens when you, when you get, when you kind of only want to be in the pain cave and you start to beat yourself up excessively? Have you gone through that ever? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I found myself wanting to race after race after race and just constantly be in that place where you feel really alive and you're suffering. But even then, even those on the outside, you and I right now looking at it and saying, oh, my God, that's like there must be something wrong. Like, dude, it's not World War Two, not the Great Depression. You know, we're not on the Lewis and Clark expedition where a couple of people died yesterday and our wheel is broken and we're stuck on the side of a mountain in the Rockies in a snowstorm. Like, it's not that bad. So, like, I, I guess I just would argue to really uh, pay attention to how bad it really is because for most of us, mm. the majority of us, it is not not that bad. Mm. And, um, and I would argue, I would argue we could all use a little more of it. Mm. Let's talk about this concept of true north, Joe. So why is it important? And in the pursuit of our true north, what are trade-offs? True north is your purpose. If you don't have a purpose, if you know, if you get into your car and you're a person like most of us that uses, you know, Google Maps or whatever the system is you have in your car to navigate yourself around and you don't put in a destination 
how the fuck are you going to get anywhere? Mm. Like, going circles, right? So your true north is that is that place where where you're going, where you want to end up, and then you work backwards from there. For me, I set you know a big audacious. I want to change a hundred million lives. And your true north, your purpose can change throughout life. It, this was not always my purpose. It's just what I what I want to do now, and probably for the rest of my life. But I want to change a hundred million lives. So then. When I'm being hit all day long with like decisions that I have to make and and I, I get to ask myself like, all right, well, is it going to help me get closer to my goal? Mm. By making this left turn in the car, am I getting closer to my destination, right? And so because we're going to be hit and faced with decisions we have to make all day, every day. Um, and, then, and then like we talked about, you're going to be facing resistance. You're going to be upset. You're going to be questioning, why am I doing this? This sucks because it's getting me closer to my goal, whatever that thing is. Mm -hmm. so it's really important. A lot of people, most people don't have that mapped out. They don't know what their true north is. Now, the next question you should ask, I'm going to do both sides of the interview here, if that's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, question. Joe, take over. <laughs> the next question you should ask is, Joe, how do we, how do we find our, our true north? And, the reality is it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, what I found, you know, these are age old questions. What would you do if you had all the money in the world? Good question. What would you do if it was your last day on earth? You know, good question. Best question though I found is, um, what would you do if you knew you were failing at it anyway? In other words, if you went into an MMA gym every day and practiced kickboxing, but you got your ass kicked. I mean, you just sucked. Every day you left with a bloody nose, a black eye, a broken limb. But every day you came back, you just loved it. You probably have a true north, a purpose that is around combat or fighting. Mm -hmm. You got to find something in that industry because you clearly love it. You suck at it, but you love it. And so you just got to have a hard think and say, look, I'm probably not going to make any money maybe at this thing or... I'm not that good at it or I don't know it, but I just love this thing and I would do it every single day. Then that's, that's your thing. Do you think though that you, you need to be functionally good at what your true North is? No, no, you don't have, I'm, I mean, I, I wasn't good at putting on events. I didn't know anything about putting on events. The first 10 years I put them on, I was terrible at it. Um, <laughs> I was terrible at it. I couldn't get anybody to do it. I had to lie to people, <coughs> disguise the event as a barbecue to convince them to come. I'm not even joking. And so I lost tons of money, but I loved it. Yeah. The few, the few people that I did get out that I convinced to, you know, change their life and, and attempt a race. And like, it was so powerful for me. I remember my bookkeeper talking to me and saying, what the fuck are you doing? We're losing so much. You're going to be out of money. I was like, I'm telling you, there's something here. I really, I love this. Yeah. Right. So no, you don't have to be good at it. You just got to love it because here's the deal. Uh, even if you're good at it, uh, the going's going to get tough. The wheels are going to fall off the bus. Just when, just when you think you got it figured out, you're going to get punched in the face. And if you love it, if it's your true north, if it's your calling, it's gonna, it's gonna pull you through those tough times. Yeah.
No, it's a, yeah, that's so true. And you know what I just realized? This is the second interview we've done where I've been in the dark. That's right. That first time we had you stuffed in the trunk. Which, what the which fuck is going on? Hi? It made sense that we had you in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's from your New York, uh, your Queens days, Joe. That's right. Um, so this, this concept of uh, purposeful suffering is one I love and manufactured adversity. So you and I had a conversation before, and I'll never forget what you said. You go, you, you said, you know, you're telling this story where you're doing this event, this running event somewhere in some remote part of some, you know, rural country or whatever. And you're like, yeah, it's tough for me, but nobody's thinking about the fucking guy that's cutting the bush down the day before. That's just his fucking living, right? And that really hit me between the eyes. I'm like, we sit here and celebrate ourselves for fucking running 40 kilometers, but people are doing this shit without any accolades. So can we talk about purposeful suffering and manufactured adversity, Joe? Yeah, I mean, we, we have, you and I, <laughs> most of us have too easy of a life. Um, we are complacent, we're comfortable, even when we pat ourselves on the back and we earn these medals and we do these tough things and these perfectly climate controlled environments, like they're not that tough, right? There's lots of people out there that, and certainly throughout history that had it a lot tougher than us. And those are, by the way, those are movies and books we like to read and watch and hear about, right? Cause those people really faced all odds and got through it. And my argument to the world is complacency is a killer. Comfort's a killer. Now, you know, if this was 150 years ago and you and I were having this conversation um, while we were being uh, attacked and challenged by our neighbors and our horses just died, I would say to you, we need more couches. But it's not 150 years ago, right? It's too, we're, we're in this place where we got everything we need. You're, you're in this smart building. The lights come on. It's fucking you know, dumb. The building's dumb. I just want to, Joe, I just want a fucking switch that I can turn on, man. Like, I don't even have a switch. You don't have a switch because that would be too much work. You got to lift your arm. Right? <laughs> That's fucking... And so my point is, uh, we have it too easy, by and large, around the world. And um, we're going to have to manufacture a little adversity in our lives in order to appreciate the life we have in order to be healthy, in order to uh, change our frame of reference so that when something bad actually does happen and something bad happens to everybody, uh, we can deal with it. I mean, shit, we practice tennis, we practice piano, we practice math. We gotta practice adversity because mm -hmm. adversity's coming whether we like it or not. And yeah. When's the last time you tried dying? That's mm -hmm. gotta be pretty tough. <laughs> so <laughs> let's practice, right? So, so, um, so anyway, you could do it with burpees, you could do it with cold showers, you could do it with long runs, you could, you know, the great Stoics years ago in Rome, this guy Seneca, what he would do, he was a very wealthy guy, he'd go out and live like a bum every once in a while in the streets with no money, live on the street. And, and when he came back, check this out, when you guys are thinking, you know, listening and thinking I'm crazy, when he came back home, he appreciated everything he had. It was like, it was like, you know, he tasted food for the first time. It was, it was wonderful because he had restricted it for 24, 48, 72 hours. And now he came back and he appreciated everything. 
And and I would, I would I'm sorry, I'm rambling here, but I would also argue by doing that, by manufacturing some adversity, by taking those creature comforts away, um, you actually become happier mm. because because think about this, we chase the next thing in order to be happy. If I only had that, if I was only dating that person, if I if we only lived in that house, um, that's a never ending hamster wheel. You'll never get enough. The reverse is if you take your stuff away and then you reintroduce it, you're happy. You appreciate what you have. The person that has nothing appreciates everything. The person that has everything appreciates nothing. There's something really powerful you touched on there. One, so, and you know what? Sometimes I get first world guilt. I find myself, and I don't know if you ever get that, but I get this kind of sense that like I look at myself and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I get this kind of sense of first world guilt, but there's, there's something that powerfully that, that you touched on one in the concept of shedding. I think it's really important to shed and to kind of live a, a, uh, a minimalistic type of life and actively shed. And it's something I do with, my son will be doing it today. We're going to go and give our stuff away. You know, we're just like, if he gets too many toys, I start to think he's accumulating too much stuff. I can see him wrapping his kind of sense of identity around stuff. We'll go and just start giving shit away. Cause I feel like we need to kind of counterbalance that with this act of shedding to kind of drive that level of gratitude it, it is what you're really talking about there. And I think that it's, it's super powerful and yeah, like I, I think that we don't do it enough. And there's the other thing that you talked about as well in the recovery community. Um, we talk about contrary actions. So doing the opposite of what you feel. And I think that's what you're touching on there, right? So really going against the grain of your, you know, your comfort zone and, and doing the shit that you just always do. There's something I want to talk to you about because um, it's super, super important to me. I actually did some work with uh, a psychometric evaluation and they unpacked my, my greatest, um, my greatest value is commitment. And I know you're a commitment person. So I want to discuss commitment, what, what it means to you and the, you know, and, and I, I suppose we can go into the, the act of publicly committing, but I think first kind of touching on committing to yourself and, and what that actually means. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's easy for us to have these ideas um, and aspirations about you know hopes and dreams and things we wanna get done in life or things we wanna to do today or this week. Or, um, but most of us aren't really committed. I love the rap preacher. I don't know if you ever listened to him but he tells this great story on YouTube you could listen to where, you know, somebody comes, I want to make a lot of money. He says, oh, you want to make a lot of money? Meet me on the beach in the morning. You ever yeah. hear that story? Eric Thomas? Or was Eric it, was it Thomas? Yeah. 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 He brings the kid out on the beach and the kid's confused, right? Because he wants to make money. What are we doing on the beach? Come out in the water. Man, this guy's crazy. What, why are we going out in the water? I just want to learn how to make money. Come out in the water a little further, a little further, a little further. Eventually pushes him under the water. And, you know, arms flailing, trying to get some breath. Finally pops out and he says, 
when you want to make money as bad as you want to breathe, then you'll make money. And that's what commitment is, right? Commitment is like clamping on like a pit bull would, like trying to, trying to breathe when you've been underwater for a minute or two, right? You've got to be that committed because when the wheels fall off, and as we said before, the wheels are going to fall off, guaranteed. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong in your life. That's just the deal. Accept it. When you're committed, like we said with that Spartan prayer, like when you're committed to that level, no problem. You get the job done. Yeah. And, and, and you, would, you would say that continuing to expose yourself to manufactured adversity, does that, that, that enhances your level of commitment and capacity for commitment? Like how do you grow commitment, I guess, is the question, right? Couple, couple ways, right? One, one, we talked about earlier before the podcast started, you got you to gotta, uh, shout it from the rooftops. You got to put your neck on the line. You got to tell everybody that you're committed to this thing. I am going to... I am going to learn uh, French. I'm going to learn French by the end of the year. And you start telling everybody you're taking a French class. You're going to learn. You're going to fle- speak fluent French by the, by year end. Now you're on the hook. You're going to look like a fraud if you don't get it done. Number two, it's going to be hard. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to want to quit. So manufacturing some adversity, doing some hard shit and keeping yourself healthy at the same time. The burpees, the cold showers, the long runs, whatever whatever the thing is you manage, going to the gym, whatever it is for you, um, you're working that muscle. You're, you're, you're working on grit and resilience so that when you just can't take another fucking French class because you're not learning as fast as you should, you can deal with it because you've been practicing hard stuff. But if you're only used to sitting on the couch in your robe, sip, sipping uh, coffee, you're going to quit. You're going to tap out when the going gets tough and the going will get tough. Everything hard, everything worth doing goes into the valley of death. Everything. Right. Could be a one mile hike for you. Could be a hundred mile hike. Could be uh, learning a new language. Could be a relationship. Everything goes into the valley of death. Hmm. And there's many people that, that die down there in the valley of death. They quit. They tap out. But there's a bunch of people that claw their way back and get to the finish line. They learn the French. They learn the math. They get through the 100-mile run. They start the new business. They marry that woman or that man. Like They get through it. They don't get divorced. Mm. Commitment, commitment is that ability to get through the valley of death. Mm. You and I share a, a appreciation and love of the endurance sport and the endurance element, obviously. Um, what do you think is what's so powerful about endurance sport and the endurance community in terms of transferable knowledge and wisdom into everyday life? Why do you think it's such a profound space, this whole endurance community? I think because look again, if this was a hundred years ago, um, a bunch of people you and I were bragging to about us going 50 miles or a hundred miles, they'd laugh at us. They yeah. said, Last week, I took my horse and carriage and grandmother across the country, 3,000 miles, 100 miles. That was like lunch, right? So, so I think in this new world where we have everything at our fingertips, the internet, fast food, Uber, um, we're addicted to it because we just want a little taste of what our ancestors went through 
to uh, for us to be here. We just want a little taste of being alive, feeling it. Yeah. Joe, I want to talk about the influence of your mom. So mom, 1970s, meets, she goes into a health food store because her mother, her mother died. And um, are you kidding me? My friend has no muffler on his car. Every time I'm trying to be nice and quiet for these podcasts, something happens. Um, my mom, her mom died her, her, of cancer. She goes into a health food store. She meets a yogi who just landed at Kennedy Airport in Queens. And uh, this neighborhood, which was mob-ridden, sausage, peppers, raviolis, ganolis, um, she learns about, you know, being vegan, about teaching yoga, meditating, all the stuff that everybody thinks is so new, new age and cool now. This is the early 70s. And um, she comes home, she, throw, she opens the fridge, literally throws everything out and uh, becomes plant-based. Um, food combining chart on the wall. She You're like, what the fuck is going on with my pizza? <laughs> disaster, man. Every day I would go to school, she would make me a wheat germ sandwich with an apple. Oh, no. And I'm, I'm, I would walk to school, which <laughs> more kids should be walking to school these days. And um, I'm walking to school, and I'd get there, and I would throw my sandwich away. I know exactly where I would throw it, behind this bush. And my friend Anthony Catapano would bring an eggplant parm hero for me with Frito Lays. Because I didn't want, who, who would want to eat a fucking wheat germ sandwich? But anyway, um, she completely transformed. Parents got divorced for obvious reasons. Um, she was considered a crackpot because there was not, there were no podcasts back then or books about that. Like this was really new wild shit. Yeah. And, um, but it was interesting when we look back, when I look back, I think, you know, it's so hard to be committed, like we talked about, in a way where you're going up against everybody around you, yeah. including your old, own family, because you know it's right. You feel yeah. it in your heart. She clearly did. She divorced my dad. She moved to Ithaca, New York, where she didn't know anybody, 250 miles away, to get my sister and I out of that neighborhood, away from that food, away from the, the mobsters. And... Um, I owe her. I owe her for it. Ultimately, ultimately, she died of cancer, like most of uh, wow. her family. But um, but she she made she look. I think Spartan wouldn't exist had she not found it. One of the other things she found through her guru was a, a race in Queens, New York, a thirty-one hundred mile mm -hmm. foot race. Yeah. It goes around a one mile loop. She introduced me to that. Have you done that, Joe? I have not done it. I watched it. I have not done it. It's crazy. Crazy race called Transcendence Run. It's like uh, 60 days, 50, 60 days. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's mom. Do you think your mom would have been, it, potentially had she been around and young enough, do you think she would participate in ultra events? Or she would, what do you think she would say if she saw the Joe DeSena today? Like, how do you think she would react? <laughs> she'd love it. I mean, she'd be on this podcast right now. She would have loved it. Mm. She, she'd be shocked. I gave her so much grief. I fought it so hard. She'd be shocked that I came around to her way. Mm. She was right. I was wrong. And, and, and let's talk about the ear. Like, although he was a criminal, he taught you 
about work ethic, I think. And I think that story is fascinating. Can you unpack that story for the listeners? Yeah, so, so as, as my parents were getting divorced, my father fell on some hard times. My neighbor was one of the big bosses, at one point the big boss. Um, he, they referenced him as the ear because, you know, if you pull your ear, uh, <laughs> that was a way to let the person you were talking to know who you were, who you were talking about. Um, at that time, there were a lot of um, bugs and wires and so forth that the feds uh, were using to listen. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't want his name ever mentioned anywhere. So, wow. Okay. Anyway, I was a young kid. I was his neighbor. He helped me start my first business. Um, I started cleaning his swimming pool. And the first day I came over, I was pre-teens. He said, I'm going to give you three lessons. He said, uh, on time is late. You're here at eight o'clock. Uh, if you're supposed to be here at eight o'clock, you better be here at 7.30, 7.45. Number two, even though you're cleaning the pool, you should also straighten up the lawn furniture, clean the shed, uh, clean the windows if you have to, but go way above and beyond. You got you to gotta over-deliver, under-promise, over-deliver. And then third, he said, never ask for money, ever. Um, you do a good job, you'll get paid. <laughs> um, I, I just stuck by that mantra. And, and it's, uh, it's really, it's worked uh, incredibly well in my life. It came from the most unlikely source. Um, but yeah, he, he, he was another one. I, I've had a bunch of, um, people in my life, mentors that, um, men, women, whatever, usually almost in every case, oh, much older, mm -hmm. um, and powerful that have, uh, for whatever reason, uh, guided me. Mm. I, I have a similar history growing up in California in, on on the wrong side of the law, I had always attracted to older men and maybe it was a lack of guidance at home, you know, immigrant family, dad always away, not really involved. And then when I got onto the good side of life, I still attracted to older men and had in, in many ways reflecting the lessons were the same. They were just implemented in different streams, one being positive, one being not so positive, right? And reflecting on, on a lot of those guys, I'm sure that you would probably say that many of them could have been successful in corporate or, or whatever, but, you know, you know, they, they just chose a different path. Not even a question. Yeah. Not even a question. I mean, yeah. If you're, if you're able to somehow motivate a, a bunch of people um, to do things for you mm -hmm. um, and keep everybody at bay and somehow manage that whole thing, mm -hmm. uh, on a napkin, you're probably pretty talented. Not even talking, just touching your ear. You're probably a pretty talented person. This, this whole piece on work ethic, you said something in the book, in, your, in Spartan Up. Well, you didn't say it, it was implied. When you were racing, adventure racing in this kind of stock-broking world, you went against the grain because you weren't getting shit faced and you weren't on Coke. And this is probably the eighties where it was like Jordan Belfort and all that kind of shit was going on. And you were out there racing and you started to create a brand of going against the grain. I feel that too. I don't drink, I don't do anything. And, and I'm kind of looked at as boring, but I know people respect it. Can you talk about how, when you choose to do what is not likely in the crowd, particularly at work, 
what the benefits were for you. Because I think that a lot of people are worried about being left out versus actually fucking standing for something. Yeah, I think if you're wasting your time worrying what other people think, um, you're wasting your time. And I think it's pretty scary to uh, take a stand around uh, your standards and what you believe in. But do you want to be mayonnaise and you want to be just like everybody else and <laughs> not, not stand out? Or do you want to be... Um, you know, I want to stand out and I want to build a brand. We all have our own personal brands. And I wanted, this is what I wanted my brand to be. Now, it was probably easier for other people because I watched my mom build that personal brand and go up against the grain, right? I watched my dad kind of do it as well. He took a, a stand and he would teach me at a very young age that like, you know, he said, when I, when I go to meetings sometimes, he said to me, I remember it um, clearly, um, you would think you have to have a drink because everybody else is mm -hmm. having a drink. And he said, I was at one meeting. By the way, this might have been a bullshit story. Now that I have children, I see that you do that to teach, right? But he said, I, I, I didn't have a drink. I, I ordered a drink, even though I don't want a drink. The CEO at the meeting didn't order a drink, ordered water. And I realized, wait a minute, we're, we don't have to um get pressured to do things that are quote unquote normal but not necessarily healthy or good yeah so i probably had an edge on others where i could go against the grain but um i very quickly learned that i was standing out in a good way yeah my brand everybody else was drinking and doing the and doing all that stuff so i couldn't i couldn't really stand out amongst them unless I spent more money at dinner and had a better restaurant. I did that too, by the way. But, um, but it was so easy if, I, if we did yoga instead or we went on a long run or an adventure race. And the other thing is, when you do hard shit with people, if you're, if you're a salesperson or a business owner, you do hard shit with people, you build a bond for life. You're at war together, right? So hang on, yeah. my dog might want to say hello. No. The famous dog. What kind of dog do you got? I got a little Jack Russell terrorist. Um, <laughs> he is, um, his name is uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton. Sir yeah. Ernest Shackleton. So uh, actually, Joe, I've been thinking about getting one of them because I heard they can run forever. Oh, they can. This guy can run. He's biting me right now. Yeah. I've got a greyhound. A and greyhound. He's, he's massive, but he's lazy as fuck. Is he? No, this, this guy's not lazy. <laughs> this, guy, this guy wants to be on the podcast. He's baiting me. He's too fast. Come here. You, want, you hungry? I got I to gotta lie to him. Kind of like I lied to those people that I used to try to get at the races. How did you do? What, what, when you say you were lying to him, what were you saying? Were you telling him there's going to be prize money and, and podiums? and? No, I would say it's a barbecue weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and then they would say to me why are we getting up at 5 a.m yeah for a barbecue and i'd say well we got to get the barbecue up to the top of the mountain with your crazy ass neighbors in vermont those two brothers probably out there shouting at them right oh they were tough they were tough are they still around they are the ashley you should get we should get eric ashley on the um on the ultra yeah are, what are they doing 
Uh, Eric um, actually helped me this summer when I did the kids camp. I did the Spartan camp yeah. for the kids. He was, um, he was my mountain warfare um, drill instructor for the kids. He's, um, he's an awesome, awesome guy. He's up. I'm sorry. This guy is being a terrorist right now. It's okay. I, I got to just get his collar, but he's too friggin' fast. I literally can't catch this fucker. Um, they catch rats and mouse, man. You ain't going to be able to get them, bro. I know. I know. Let's see. That's it. Hang on. I might have them. Stay. Got them. All right. I want you to meet them. All right. Let's see. Oh, look at him. He's, oh, he's a fluffy one. He's a fluffy. He's a wire hair, they call him. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's a cute. wire hair. And, um, you know, a lot of people in my office uh, are like, I can't believe you got this little dog. You're ruining the brand. And I'm Why? like, I don't know. Oh, right. This dog literally is, is tough. It's the toughest dog. I've had a lot of tough dogs. This dog is tough as nails. Mm. And it thinks, they think, these Jack Russell Terriers, they think they're horses. Right. They, they, they go up against anything. doesn't matter. Yeah. Like any other yeah. dog I've had, it's easy to train using all the proper techniques, you know. They do something wrong, give them a little smack under the chin. This dog does not care. Mm. <laughs> like... He, I think he follows the Spartan prayer. Well, that's, that, that's the thing though. That's an interesting point. You don't have to, you don't have to be Rambo to be a Spartan. Right. And, and, and you know what you talked about this, like, you know, with the impact on events, you were on the ritual podcast and you were talking about the impact on events. And it had me thinking the thing about Spartan is yes, it's about the events, but it's an idea, right? You don't have to, it's not embodied in this muscle man. It, it, it means different things to different people. It's an idea that proliferates irrespective of events or not. And it can be represented in a mouse to a lion. Because to your point, but to your point, you had people come to those events that were like fucking ex-military that couldn't finish it. That's right. That's right. And then you had moms that did finish it. So it's a, mind, it's a mindset more than anything. It's, um, it's a level of commitment. I got a book I wrote, I don't know, three, four years ago now called The Spartan Way. And I laid out that exact um, journey and those, those exact principles, right? That true north, that ability to commit, changing your frame of reference. And, and it's really, like you said, it's just a mindset. It's a way of life. Whether you do events or you don't do events, it, you can be a ballerina, you could be a chef. If you've watched that movie, I think it's called Burnt. Um, uh, I, I forgot the actor's name now, but um, but he attacks the kitchen. Now he has uh, other issues with drugs and so forth. It's a great movie, Burnt. Um, but he attacks the kitchen like a Spartan, like 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 a two-star Michelin chef would. You know, like so. It doesn't matter what you do, do it like a Spartan. This this piece on your kids. Now, one of the most memorable things from my conversation with you back in the day was your son was there when we were filming and you showed me this video. He wanted an Xbox. I'll never forget this shit, man. I told my wife, my wife's sick of this story. And you made him pull rope in the garage and he got the Xbox. But then he, I asked him because he, he, he came into the, uh, the interview. I go, so did your dad get you any games? He was like, well, no. Cause now he's got to pull rope for more games. <laughs> he's like, fuck this. So let's talk about 
you know, making kids walk around the neighborhood with kettlebells and this whole piece on being a dad. And it's something also I'll never forget in our last conversation. I asked you, I said, Joe, do people around you, like your wife and everyone think you're crazy? And what do you do? And you said, well, yeah, they do. But I have a decision to make around, I'm paraphrasing, challenging them or like taking the easier, softer way and letting them off the hook. And I'll never forget about that. Like when I'm with my son and it's easier to not let, you know, to let him off the hook so he doesn't have a tantrum. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And when you're on the Rich Roll podcast, it was a really, really interesting piece there when Rich asked you about parenting and he said how he doesn't, he doesn't kind of make his kids do something. And you were like, I make them do it. And I was like, yeah, that, that's me. So can you talk about that, Joe, this whole, this whole concept of how you parent? Yeah. So, you know, there, years ago, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal about a tiger mom. <laughs> and um, there was a lot of controversy in the U.S. about it because she her feeling was you American moms, you have it all wrong. Um, you're too soft on the kids. Uh, when the kid wants to quit, so, you know, piano, whatever it is, you let them quit. And in China, we pick a discipline and we push the kid through and eventually the kid learns to like it because they get good at it. And um, I don't know, I really took that to heart. Plus, I, plus my mom and my dad were pretty tough, but I said, we're not gonna have, like you get one chance at this and, and no one's gonna wanna hear me say this. this I'm, I'm going out on a limb. On say this. it. I'm gonna piss some people off. But, Fuck it. <laughs> you know, if you're training dogs, you're training an animal, um, when you let that animal get away with things, they learn that behavior. So if you're letting your children get away with things or quit things, they learn that behavior. Now everybody's up in arms. Joe's comparing children to dogs or whatever. It is what it is. We're all animals. Um, I've recently spoken to a neuroscientist that looks at brains. He actually gets in there, cuts open skulls, looks at brains, and he's like, we can see people that took on hard challenges through their life and finish them because you see the connections. They're almost like train tracks. Whereas people that start things and don't finish, you see the gaps in the brain. And when there's gaps, it's harder later in life to uh, fill those gaps. You tend to quit lots of things. And so um, the message from him to children, to me, was you got to get kids when they start tough stuff to finish. It's very, very important. It leaves a physical gap in the brain if they don't. So I didn't even know that from a, from a neuroscience perspective. I just knew that, again, if you're training a dog or an animal, if you let them do certain things, that that's what they learn. So why wouldn't we want to teach them, again, the same way we teach piano or math or or um, being a good person, why wouldn't we want to teach them how to take on tough challenges and finish them? Of course, they're not going to like wrestling or pulling the rope or doing push-ups or uh, whatever the things are that we do or playing a piano when they're not that. But like, suck it up. Fucking figure it out. We're, this is what we're doing. I think, um, I think that's an interesting point. I think especially in Western culture with so many options and freedom, there's a lack of commitment. And when you compared 
to that story around Tiger Mom growing up in China, you almost have to commit to a process and stick with it, right? Because you don't have tons of optionality. No, no, they don't. In, in many cases in the world, the parents don't and the kids don't have all the choices we have. And so they stick to it and they know that their way out is becoming good at that thing, at that craft, right? If they, if they want to get into a college or whatever. Um, we have it, our kids have it a lot easier. Uh, they don't necessarily need that. But actually, I would argue our kids in the first world, they have so much. The one thing they're missing, the one gap our kids have is um, they don't have grit and resilience. They don't have stick to itness. They don't have the ability to commit and hang on for life because it doesn't matter. They're going to get fed anyway. So when you're becoming successful as an individual and you're creating comfort indirectly for your children because, you know, your success means that they're living a certain way, by very design, it's moving in the other direction, isn't it? From resilience and, and grit and all that kind of stuff. Like, <laughs> I, thought, I thought firsthand in the neighborhood, all those guys, all those bosses that were tough as nails, they had children. And in most cases, those children became very soft. And I, I remember scratching my head because it was around the time that Rocky Balboa came into existence. Right. And, and, and you know, Rocky too, I think it was where he made some money and he got soft. And it really stuck with me that, oh, wait a minute, I have to make sure that never happens. When I do well, I got to make sure I don't get soft. And so uh, because that's a tough hole to dig out of. Right. And that and 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 let's go back to in life, being soft doesn't help unless you're a marshmallow, maybe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's so true, Joe. That's so true. So you are now in a place where we've been impacted by COVID. Um, there was an interesting piece. You, I know you work really hard. You said that your team, you're like an, you're like a battery always on the last bar and you just don't die. How do you refill your cup, Joe? Like, what's that look like, man? Well, let's go. Let's go take a look. Show you what gets me. Gets me excited. Let's see. Let's go see. Let's see what we got going on here. We're gonna go into the garage where one of my boys is training. You love your wrestling, don't you, Joe? Oh, there we go. He's got a bite of leg. <laughs> you, you don't have the wrestler living there anymore, do you? No, but he comes over every day. And so are your kids becoming wrestlers? They're working, on it. They're working on it. Why do you love wrestling so much? Because once you've wrestled, everything else in life is easy. Why? Explain for some of us that have never wrestled. Um... These kids, my boys now are training um, minimum of three hours a day. Yeah. Um, seven days a week. And I don't know if you, I don't know if you were able to see it just now, but um, yeah, his face was sweaty. 
right yeah. away. And he's only been in there, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. So you're working at 100, 100% um, for you know three hours a day. And then, then you got a tournament on the weekend and you go out there and you're singlet and you get pinned and you lose. <laughs> and you got to fucking dust it off and get back up and go train another 21 hours that week. Mm-hmm. And then you lose again. It's like, it's like, it's, it's hard. I mean, you're training that much for a couple minutes, a couple of minutes and you lose. And, you know, unless you're one of the best in the world, there's very few in, uh, instances, very few instances where somebody, you know, never lost, but like everybody loses because, because there's somebody else training 23 hours and it's just like awful. I, I, I just seen a video this morning of the the best high school wrestler in the U.S. wrestling that Russian MMA guy. I don't I don't know his name. He's got the big ears. I didn't see it. And yeah, like they, they're in the high school gym and they're going at it. And I mean, he's obviously not going as hard as he can. But I was like, I re, I remember as a kid, there's nothing worse than being put in a headlock you can't get out of. Can't get out of it. It's so anxiety provoking, right? Yeah. 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 I love it. I, I told my wife the other day, I want the girls to do rugby or something. I want to <laughs> Come to Australia, Joe. Yeah. Well, look, Joe, I really, I really want to thank you for your time, man. I um, always love, always love chatting with you. One thing that is extraordinary and I'll say it here is your accessibility, like irrespective of how big Spartan gets and how busy you are you're always accessible and you always answer your own emails. You get back quickly. It's just bizarre in terms of how responsive you are. Um, and again, I just, yeah, I really want to, to, to say thank you. And uh, yeah, it's amazing to have you on the first episode of ultra habits. We got some of your friends coming on too. We got Anthony trucks. Oh, he's, he's the best. And uh, we've had Gil Blander, the, the blood doctor dude. So, yeah, again, I just want to thank you for your time, Joe. You're the man. Um, I'll tell you one quick story before we go. My, uh, my daughter runs out to get on the bus yesterday morning, and the dog is looking back and forth, and somehow the dog gets the door open and runs out and gets on the school bus and wouldn't get off. So she, <laughs> they have a bond. The kids and the dog have a bond. Yeah. There she is. What would she say? I don't know. Come here. What would you say? Today, she went on the bus solo. Right, right. All right, well, we'll see you later. You're the man. Take care, Joe. Bye-bye.